0: Pair Mark and History hit. I'm just inside the bailey of one of the greatest castles in the world, Annick Castle, the bastion of the Earls of Northumberland, some of the mightiest peers in English history. It's seen at it all this place. It's played host to Oliver Cromwell's army on the way to and from Dunbar. It's been besieged. It's seen the death of kings of Scotland outside the walls, besieged, taken, recaptured many, many times. This place is English history podcast coming from here soon but in the meantime I'd like you to listen to this rather fascinating one about the Jewish community of Amsterdam. Lepica Pelham is a historian she's written a book called Jerusalem on the Amstel about this remarkable community of Jews and their contribution to Dutch and world history. Enjoy. I feel the
1: hand of history upon our shoulders. All the tradition of ours, our school history, our songs. This part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child,
0: one teacher, one book and one pen can change
1: the world. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. How did there come to be this dynamic Jewish community on the margin of Northwest Europe? How did that happen?
1: That is the interesting kind of twist in this tale, and that's why I started writing this book. I used to be full-time on the staff with the BBC, and now I do freelance work for them. So I was asked to do a programme on 500 years of the Protestant Reformation, and from the Jewish angle. So I thought, how do I do that? And then I started reading, and somehow the kind of incredible world... Appeared before me that out of a bunch of new Christians, Catholics, emerged this most incredibly prosperous Jewish community in Amsterdam. So, how did that happen? It happened. It is a direct byproduct of the Protestant Reformation because Amsterdam opened up the, in a newly Protestant Calvinist city, then invited all the migrants and people from all around the world, that included religious refugees, not just the new Christians. Uh, There were many Huguenots and persecuted people from all around the world. They arrived at Amsterdam's shore and they were given the so-called sanctuary. So the new Christians came as a business community from Iberia, fleeing the persecution. And when they arrived, some of them were obviously, we know the Maranos, the secret Jews, and Marano is a, a derogatory term for for Jews who are practicing Judaism. Uh, new Christians who practiced Judaism secretly, so Iberian Spanish authorities call them Marano, means swine in you know.
0: pig yeah because so I'll, I'll stop you there. So we got 1490s Ferdinand is about complete what they call the reconquest of Spain. Well, how do they treat the sizable Jewish population and the Islamic population
1: given three months to convert or leave. Okay, so I think it was Spain, Mallorca, Sardinia, and four areas that they had to kind of vacate within three months or be baptised. And so most of them stayed and were baptized because they didn't want to lose their property. And and they had great status, you know. They were living under Muslim rule, the former 800 years of Muslim rule, and they had great places, you know, in the government, in in society, in financial you know areas. They were advisors to, you know, uh, authorities. So obviously they didn't want to lose those positions. So they remained, they thought, being forcibly baptized would entitle them, would enable them to stay and, and, and hold on to their properties. So what happened uh, that um, the new form of persecution started, that they were constantly being tested by the Catholic police, the Inquisition police, whether they were true Christians or not. So all the converted Jews were called new Christians as opposed to old Christians. So the new Christians were always spied on by secret police by general population and um, always kind of there snooping around their homes uh, seeing if they're eating pigs or smell of any jewish kind of food in passover you know and bread or unleavened an bread and all, all these things that were being constantly being spied on by the catholic population so they thought enough is enough we don't want to be here so many of them, obviously, in, you know, in 1492 also uh, went with, with Columbus you know, to the New World. And, and there was a kind of a big migrant communities actually moved. You know, there was a migration to the New World with, you know, following Columbus's expedition. But there were many, they went to North Africa, went to the Ottoman Empire, but a, a vast majority stayed in Iberia, in the Iberian Peninsula, as new Christians and most of them were persecuted. There were kind of, of course, exceptions and who were, had connections. But apart from that, those few, most of them were persecuted and they were looking for opportunities to leave. So the opportunity arrived with the Protestant Reformation. And
0: at that stage, Amsterdam was within the same empire as Spain. So it wasn't as crazy. It wasn't sort of going to a completely different jurisdiction, was it?
1: No, they didn't leave at 1492. They stayed in Iberia. The the opportunity hadn't arrived then. It arrived in the 1590s. And in 1579, when the Dutch Republic was created, and the separation from the Iberian rule, and the Dutch Republic emerged with this Union of Utrecht Treaty, which said that people should have freedom of uh, expression, and so they should be able to choose their religion. And it was, of course, they needed it, because of, obviously people were Catholics. If they didn't have that rule, then then people wouldn't be able to choose to become Protestant. So that law then enabled the Jews also, when who came to Amsterdam in the 1590s onwards, to be able to choose, or actually they were for the first time, were presented with the opportunity that it is perhaps possible to go back to our ancestral religion, Judaism. It was the most incredible opportunity that arrived and that was presented to them by the situation, by the transformation in Western Western Europe. And they snatched it.
0: Because obviously, sometimes... Non-conform, sometimes you know, dissenting communities, were quite anti-Semitic. So, so what was it about Dutch Calvinism that was just happy to have Jewish settlers arrive?
1: Well, it wasn't... At first, they didn't know anti-Semitism in the same way the Iberian Peninsula had had known it. They knew it from art, obviously, and in the Western art, was full of this deformed physiognomy of the Jews, as we know from Bosch's kind of christ mocked and... All the previous kind of Western art is full of these caricatures of Jewish long nosed, beak nosed persons, you know, mocking Christ or somehow we know we, we, they were familiar with that. But in terms of the in Amsterdam, they've never seen any Jews, although there were new Christians in Antwerp, but they were new Christians, they were Catholics. So in terms of seeing, A huge community of people, migrant community, who came and declared within a few years that they were Jewish. At first, they were sort of taken aback a bit. But the good question you asked that, why didn't they resent it's a migrant settler community, they come here, they look different because they are olive skinned, they wear most incredibly flamboyant kind of outfit clothes. For example, Rembrandt has painted one of the diplomats at the time, Samuel Palash, and the painting is called A Man in the Oriental Costume. And he's got the visual kind of turban and a gold and brocade sort of lace everywhere, obviously they looked like that they came and, and you wonder how how on earth these people in black and white under a cloudy sky turnerous sky let's say you know and they are seeing these people from this country of sunshine and how are they how are they dealing with this so the most important thing here is it was self interested they came with lots of money and expertise in the new world so the jews as i said that 1492 when Columbus, there are many Jews, there was this migration of Jews going to the new world. So they settled there with businesses as Catholics, obviously, and some of them were Maranos or secret Jews. And so the Iberian settlers, new Christians who arrived in Amsterdam, they were so well connected. So they were connected to the new world. they were connected to North Africa, Venice, all the old Sephardim, who left in 1492 unsettled and prospered again. As you know, Morocco had a thriving Jewish community at the time. And Samuel Palash is one of them that Rembrandt has painted. He came over around kind of 1609 when the 12-year truce happened with Spain. And there was a 12-year period of truce during the 80-year war. So the war ended in 1648, but there was a 12-year period when it was all open for people from, you know, persecuted people or people who were kicked out of Spain, i.e. Jews. They could then go back to Spain or go back to former Spanish colonies. As the Palash came to Amsterdam and he was appointed to convert these new Christians into Judaism. And he was also in town for a different purpose. Most importantly, he was in town not to convert them. He came to broker a trade deal with Stadtholder, House of Orange, Prince Maurice, and Mule Zidane, the Moroccan sultan. So he was in that position. So he comes to Amsterdam, and then he sees his former countrymen, his former Sephardim, they're the bunch of Catholics. What are they doing? And, just like, you know, and, and they were being at first converted by an Ashkenazi rabbi who the New christians got from Emden, so this guy came and started converting them in a wrong, the wrong way because you can't be Ashkenazi, you are Sephardi, you are former Sephardim and I will convert you. So he then brought over more Moroccan Jews from Fez. Isaac Uziel, for example, came and uh, so they sort of started converting them into proper normative Sephardi Judaism.
0: And so this community becomes one of the most dynamic Jewish communities on the planet and are they are they quite central to Amsterdam's status as the as one of Europe's greatest trading cities
1: yes so what was happening also in the early 17th century that Amsterdam was emerging as the most the world's richest city the most prosperous and liberal and open-minded city And it suited Amsterdam, obviously. Amsterdam needed all these people with different skills and and trade skills and diplomatic skills to come and contribute to the city. So that shows, again, what migrant communities can do to uh, any city and how it can become the world's richest nation, richest city. And it can contribute to not only art, culture, and it also, as you know, I mean... The person who, the philosopher, who spearheaded enlightenment, the Western enlightenment, is, is Baroque Spinoza, who is from the community, who was born within the Amsterdam Sephardic community. And you know that he was excommunicated, but that's a different story. But uh, the fact that the Jews created all these art sort of collectors and performers and philosophers and merchants and diplomats and it was possible only because they were given this sanctuary. And there's kind of lots of literature written by Jewish writers at the time. They call Amsterdam their little sanctuary. And it's just kind of a poem that runs through my book. It's written by Rehuel Jesurun In 1616, he's a Sephardi Jew who came from Italy and converted to Judaism in Amsterdam and wrote this amazing play called Dialogo dos Montes, means The Conversation of the Mountains. And here we have the humanized mountains talking about who the greatest of them is. So it's Mount Sinai where the giving of the Torah happened. And so this is also quite important, all this, because Protestant Reformation was going back. The Protestants were going back to the origins of the faith, which is Judaism. So they wanted to cut the whole saints and... All, all the kind of middlemen or middle there were the middle women some, yeah, middle, few, middle some women, yeah. few middle women, and then go straight to the origins of the religion, which is the Pentateuch, which is the, the five books of Moses. Here were the people who came from Moses. Moses is their prophet, so they have a lot to learn from these people. So another uh, important strand of the Protestant thoughts at the time that we need to explain is that why was it important for them for the jews to be there because one of the preconditions for the coming of the messiah it was also an age of messianism 17th century was that the jews have to be restored to their original position and they have to be all then converted to christianity but they have to be first restored they have to be restored to their original position i.e give them power and comfort and opportunities and they have to feel comfortable and established and integrated and then they will convert to Christianity and then the Messiah will come.
0: Sounds like modern American evangelical (laughs) evangelical (laughs) Protestantism. So
1: that that was also they wanted to learn. The Calvinists felt that they had to learn the Torah and read the Torah in original Hebrew so they were also teaching them So as you know, in the 17th century, art is full of Hebrew writing. Most of the letters are you know, often wrongly written, but Rembrandt actually mastered the writing of Hebrew. And so by the time he did Belshazzar's Feast, you know, the writing is almost, almost there. There are some mistakes, but you know, he learned how to write Hebrew. Hebrew letters. So, so it's kind of God's handwriting, you know, that your days are numbered, as you know, the, this painting, you know, and so so that was another reason why they wanted Jews to be there, so that they, you know, they could create the atmosphere which would entice the, or well, which would hasten the coming of the Messiah.
0: More from Le Pico Pelham and the Jerusalem and the Amstel in just a second. Don't forget If you want to listen to ad-free podcasts, go to History Hit TV. It's my digital history channel. It works like Netflix. You pay a small subscription and you get ad-free podcasts and you get hours and hours of the world's best TV documentaries, all in the same place. If you're a true history fan, you need to be on History Hit TV. If you listen to this podcast, we'll give you the code POD4 to access 30 days free and then one pound or dollar for each of the first four months. So POD4, P-O-D-4, use the code at checkout and get a lot of history for just four pounds or dollars. Enjoy. So that's the early 17th century. How does this community change and deal with the next 200 years? Like before the early 20th century.
1: Well, the community sort of by the kind of middle of the 17th century, they were already this kind of the that height of their success, you know, and they have. They prospered really well. They had the best houses on here in Gracht, which is the the best address in Amsterdam. So some of the houses are painted and etched by many contemporary Dutch artists like Romaine de Hoek and
0: and can I quickly ask, yeah. were they being excluded from leadership oh, positions and yeah, politics? Yeah, yeah. there okay. was a
1: trade guild, okay. so they couldn't do lots of things. But then they turned a blind eye uh, quite a lot of the times. For example, they couldn't be physicians, but there were Jewish doctors. They couldn't join, uh, go to university, but there were some kind of teachers. And yeah, of course, the trade guild was quite strict, and that was only removed in, in 1796 when the Napoleon. emancipation happened. Yeah. When Napoleon came in? Yeah, yeah, after the French Revolution. Yeah.
0: Wow, we can ask yeah. about Napoleon in a 2nd Okay, so the 17th century, they their their fate sort of charts out of Amsterdam, so it becomes the world's most important trade city. Then, as the Dutch are slightly eclipsed by the British through the 18th century, how did the fortune of the Jewish community? Oh,
1: so sort of dwindled, and so they kind of after after the emancipation, and you know, and then the 19th century kind of set in, and they sort of settled in proper schools, and they went to mixed schools before. Until then, the schools were segregated, and everything was segregated, and they wanted the segregation. They thought the segregation would Within that segregated community they would prosper and within the segregated Christian community the Christians would prosper differently as Christians. So intermarriage was completely forbidden. So even going to Christian prostitutes was forbidden. So Jews actually brought over it's kind of interesting point. Ashkenazi prostitutes from Germany and Poland after the you know thirty years kind of religious war, then these Ashkenazi Jews fled pogroms from Central Europe and came to Amsterdam too. And at first, it sounds really incredible that it's the Sephardi Jews who gave them shelter, the Ashkenazi Jews, who were first looked after by them and even at first they were allowed to pray, you know, in their synagogues, but very soon they had their own synagogue, but it never happened. And that was another precondition of the coming of the Messiah from the Jewish point of view, that the two denominations of Judaism, they have to come in the same place and they have to kind of be friends again after the great, you know, dispersion that, you know, led the diasporic Jews, you know, that led the kind of the, the expansion of the diaspora, Jewish diaspora. So in the 19th and 20th so century... So quick question.
0: So Napoleon is a hero in this story, and the French Revolutionary Forces who conquer what is now effectively the Netherlands. The French Revolutionary Forces are great liberators for the Jewish community.
1: Well, it had a direct impact, as we know, because of the emancipation happened just 10 years after the French Revolution. So until that point, the Jews were restricted from joining the trade guilds. The the trade guilds separated Jews from the Protestants. So it, it had ideological, massive impact on the contemporary Calvinist thoughts, obviously. And that was, I think, you know, the emancipation of the late 18th century in Amsterdam, in Holland, is a direct result of that, of the French Revolution. But then Jews, it was like they almost descended into this obscurity and sort of they lived in a kind of, maybe because it was normalised. So it wasn't kind of a big Jewish golden age, you know, continuing, no. So it was a normalised relationship. So that part, uh, I left out that part in my book because it's, uh, somehow I went straight to the 20th century and the Holocaust.
0: Right, and that's well, the
1: second part of the book. And I left out that 100 years of normalisation, 19th century. I, Lena, yeah.
0: well, between, my, between ourselves, the 19th century I find a bit boring. As well.
1: <laughs> Like, also, I'm kind of this kind of relationship, it. it was normalised. And people, they lived like normal Dutch yeah. citizens. And, right, exactly. And yeah.
0: then the 20th century was not normal yeah. at all. <laughs> uh, let us talk about what happens in May 1940 when the Netherlands falls to German forces. What What is...
1: They- Okay, so I described the play that runs through the book. There is a reason behind it, because it retains the internal kind of cohesion of the... And so the Jews, when they first arrived, they loved theatre. And they joined, the first thing they did, they joined the local theatre group and got membership cards. And they performed plays throughout their time in Amsterdam. They're obsessed with it, perhaps partly due to their Catholic past. And they come with this Catholic tradition of... Performing plays in churches and um and 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 and, and with a lot kind of um, uh, uh, amalgamating all the religious themes of you know of the old testament and and the saints and um yeah it just a really colorful past they brought with them and then it, it is paradoxical that when the Germans invaded the Jews were then herded into the municipal theater and it was Nicknamed at the time as the Jewish theatre, because Jews were kind of the predominant players and and directors and contributors and financiers. And so they were herded into the local theatre, Holland Schauberg, the theatre is called. And while they waited to be transported to various transit camps, kind of mainly kind of Westerbork. And so it it was just, if you go there, have you been to the theatre? It's a memorial now, Holocaust Memorial. It would be impossible to think how the capacity of 300, how 3,000 people were gathered while they waited to be transported to transit camps. And,
0: and how uh, how immediately did the Germans decide to? Did they did they create a sort of ghetto, or, or did did they transport the Jews quite early on from Emsdorf?
1: Some of them managed to escape. Actually, that's another thing I discuss in the book, which shows kind of the shifting fate of the Iberian Neo Christians, Iberian former Catholics, converted Jews who actually tried to appeal to the Nazis, please don't send us to camps because we are not racially Jews. So some of the Sephardi Jewish leaders met this judge called Nohem de Benedetti. And he then contacted two anthropologists, Aryan Kappers, one of them is called, and, and Ari Dufro, the second one. They were already trying to tell the Nazis that these people might not be racially Jews anyway. And then and judge to then went to Aryan Kapus and appealed to him that you could measure our head. You know, there was kind of head measurements and, and height and, and all sorts of things. And then he created a, a long report, Arian Kappers, and presented to the Nazi commander at the time that um, these are actually, these people are of, of Mediterranean origin because for 200 years they lived in I, the Iberian Peninsula as converted Christians, baptized Christians, and they married Old, some of the old Christians. So after 200 years, they actually diluted into this kind of Christian racial group. And so they actually, they have none none of the Jewish racial characteristics or elements left in them anymore. So they should be spared of being sent to concentration camps or transit camps. So it was delayed a bit. So the, the Sephardi Jews actually weren't sent right away. And they were investigating and at one point towards the end I think 1944 they decided that this is all a rubbish and you know they, they, I, it's kind of really derogatory kind of comment that this Nazi commander made that oh these people are sort of liars and the followers light, and and this is this is not true and they will all be sent. So the appeal was rejected and and The separate appeal was sent to the Portuguese government. That was rejected because Portugal didn't want to do anything against the Nazis. So, and
0: how how large was the Jewish population of Amsterdam before in 1940?
1: It was 10 percent of the population, but um, now it's only a thousand Jews left. Thousand one thousand Jews left there.
0: So the war yeah, yeah, the war just, wiped oh, yeah, out that the, uh,
1: Holland was the in Western Europe, the largest number of Jews sent to concentration camp. And then in Europe, it's the second largest number of Jews uh, that were sent to the concentration camps, uh, to camps. Um, I mean, so per, Poland, per, sort of... Poland is the, the, the kind of the highest number of Jews from Poland yeah. were sent. The second highest went from, from proportion Hammond. of the population? Yeah, 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 well, okay. yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It's 75% of the population were sent to camps. Mm
0: and just almost
1: 75% yeah died wiped out wiped out and and 25% included also 20,000 went into hiding so that sort of in yeah including that you know people who came back so i think 104,000 people were sent and a small proportion came back of that i think yeah i've had um, yeah.
0: i've had danny lord finkelstein on the pod talking about his auntie's friendship with Anne franks Family, I think it was sister in particular. So listeners have heard a little bit about the Holocaust in Amsterdam before. But when, when we talk about people in hiding, were, were they within the city itself, like Anne Frank? Or? Uh, um, no,
1: they actually managed to hide these uh, 20,000 who who survived in hiding. Actually, they got that time when the Nazis were discussing whether these are racially Jews or not. So that actually allowed some extra time to these Jews to actually to go into hiding and there are many who could have gone into hiding during that period didn't. They thought they will definitely listen to us, they will definitely listen to us. So the question I ask at the end of the book that it is like Jewish destiny at the Jewish history is full of these, especially Sephardi Jewish history is full of improbable destinies. Somehow they were. This great dispersion happened, the, the destruction of the temple in the first century, and then they disperse, they come to lots of different countries in North Africa and then Ottoman Empire, and, and then end up in the Iberian Peninsula. They live 800 years of fairly relative, you know, in peace and, 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 and continuity and security. And then the, the Spanish Inquisition happens and they're forcibly baptized. After 200 years, they come to Amsterdam, they become Jews again, and then Second World War happens. And if they were the appeal was heard by the Nazis and the Portuguese government at the time, does that mean that they would have gone back to their Catholic past? Mm. And would that mean that it would have been the end of the Western Sephardim? That's the question I ask. I mean, I, I leave that book sort of hanging, this question, because I can't really answer
0: yeah, imagine, this, it's, it's, shipped imagine to if to Iberia. By, yeah, shipped yeah. to
1: Iberia or just become Catholics again. And maybe some of them would have remained secret Jews like Maranos again. And so the the process would have repeated somehow.
0: What the story, that's a, it's a remarkable story of a, of a particular community. Mm. And the book is called?
1: It's called Jerusalem on the Amstel. Jerusalem on the Amstel. It's because they called Amsterdam their Dutch Jerusalem. And they called it, that Dutch Jerusalem because it was the final stage before their transfer to real Jerusalem. So it was the penultimate stage before the Messiah. So Messianic age is not just a Christian Messianic, it's a Messianic age that involved both Christians and Jews. The Jews believed it was the time the Messiah, actually Messiah did come, but he proved to be false Messiah, it's in the book. As you know, Shabtai Zivi who came in the mid 17th century and declared he was the Messiah. And then soon afterwards, it was proved that he, he was actually a false, fake messiah. Mm-hmm. So that didn't happen. And so Jerusalem was, it was the final stage before salvation.
0: And sadly for too many, it just proved to be the opposite.
1: Yeah. Did, yeah.
0: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book, and
0: one pen can change the world.
1: He tells us what is possible not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.